0: It's been a busy couple of weeks here in Philadelphia, what with the World Series and the election and everything else that's been going on in the world. So we're going to re-release an episode that we first recorded this time last year for Native American History Month. It's one of our favorite episodes, and if you've heard it before, we hope you'll enjoy listening to it again. If you haven't heard it before, we hope that you'll find it interesting We'll be back again in a couple weeks with the next episode from our new season, Drama is Conflict. In the interim, we'll be in the library preparing some new great research about the history of Philadelphia theater. Okay, here we go. We began our entire podcast story with the founding of Philadelphia in the late 17th century. And in our second episode, I rushed rather quickly through the early years of this city's history because, for our purposes, there wasn't much formal theater to talk about before the middle of the 18th century. Now, of course, approaching matters this way, it centers mostly the mode of live performances that we generally think about when we speak of theater, the standard Western definition of the art form. This tends to leave out other types of performance, especially ones that are passed down by long-standing cultural practices and oral transmission. But the frustrating problem for theater historians is that once the chain of oral transmission in a particular culture anywhere is broken, there's no real way of retrieving it if Someone did not record it or write it down in some way. So, like the famous story of the man looking for the lost keys only under the lamppost, because that's where the light is, we stick mostly to where written records exist. The long-ago dances, storytelling, the ceremonies and the rituals of the Leni Lenape and other peoples who dwelled in what is now called eastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey for thousands of years are largely inaccessible to us, and I don't pretend to have any special knowledge about them that I can share with you. Though there is a lot of work being done by archaeologists excavating ancient Native American settlements in the area, I've never seen anything about evidence of performances or ceremonies. So out of respect for the subject, I don't want to speculate. I'm sticking with where the light is and what I can put my hands on. While researching the period of Philadelphia history from about 1790, to 1820, I keep coming across references to Native Americans in the city's theaters. Not Lenny Lenape, but visitors, delegations of many other tribes from the Northeast and from the Midwest. Now, this shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. Many of us have a tendency or a habit of mind to think of Native Americans or Indians, as they are invariably called in all the source material from this period, as mainly existing on or beyond the frontier, somewhere out west. We tend to do this, even though we also know that native communities still exist in areas of New England, New York State, and many other places east of the Mississippi, even today. Philadelphia in this period is tied up in our minds with images of stolid Quakers Politicians, bankers, painters, sailors, carpenters, laborers. We look at the pictures in the famous book, Birch's Views of Philadelphia, and we see people working along the Delaware waterfront, striding along High Street, strolling in front of the Pennsylvania Hospital on Spruce Street. White people, mostly, but also many African Americans. But if you look closely, two of these pictures clearly show groups of Native Americans in traditional garb, in Birch's depiction of the New Lutheran Church on 4th Street, for example, you can clearly see a group of about half a dozen Native Americans walking along the sidewalk. A white man in a three-cornered hat walks beside them, looking towards them, his arm gesturing to the side as if he's giving them a tour around the town. And in the engraving titled quote, "The Back of the State House," unquote, what we would now call Independence Hall, four native men walk across the lawn. In animated conversation with each other, from these depictions, at least, it would seem that the sight of indigenous people in what was then the nation's capital was a notable part of the passing scene, enough for William Birch and his son to want to put them in his book, but a normal part of city life. By many accounts, we know it was common for Native American delegations to visit Philadelphia during this time, and that they were not complete strangers to the residents of the city, and their relationship between the two groups might really be astoundingly intimate. In his memoir, theatrical manager William Wood tells the story of a comedian in the New theater's company by the name of Pollard, who during the visit of a delegation from a northern tribe in 1797 was astonished to discover amongst them someone who might have been his twin. The resemblance between the two men was so striking. After a little inquiry, the actor learned that it was, in fact, his long-lost half-brother, the product of a liaison between his father, a British Army officer, and a Native American woman. But I should note that it was political reasons that were usually the impetus for visits of delegations indeed as we learned in our regular episode number seven it was quite usual for groups of indian tribes to come to the city while it was the capital city of the u s in the seventeen nineties in order to negotiate treaties to settle disputes to collect indemnities and register complaints And it continued to be common for Native American groups to come here even after the capital moved to Washington, D.C. because Philadelphia was on the route that they had to travel. They would come to Philadelphia, make a right turn, and then go down to Washington, D.C. So these delegations continued to visit the city up through 1820 or so, and we know that they were also interested in exploring the cultural life of Philadelphia, like any visitor. Now, as we detailed in Episode 7, it was also common for these delegations to give dance performances in Philadelphia, in theater spaces, in order to raise money for the travel expenses to go the long way from where they were living to where the U.S. government was. So we talked about the infamous dance of the loose loincloth, also described in Wood's memoir, which happened during an exhibition of dances at the New Theater on Chestnut Street in 1802 during which some of Philadelphia's ladies were supposedly scandalized by getting a full frontal view of a male performer's anatomy. But there were even other visits by Native American delegations to the new theater, ones I didn't tell you about before. On March 17, 1806, a group from a visiting Osage tribe was in the audience of a performance by Thomas Cooper of Macbeth we know this because mr carpenter the reviewer from the publication the theatrical censor was keeping an eye on them during the show to see how they liked it and he reported that cooper's acting drew tears from at least one of the chiefs and that the afterpiece, a comic opera called the romp elicited the laughter of the whole group and there were more native american dance performances at the new theatre that i left out of episode seven but i'm happy to tell you about them now too For instance, on April 2nd, 1808, in between performances of a comedy titled Tears and Smiles and a musical entertainment called Too Many Cooks, we see from a newspaper ad that, the Oneida Indians now in this city will dance several of their country dances, particularly the war dance, the war song, preparing for battle, the manner of fighting, etc., But, lest the ladies of Philadelphia should have any concerns about a repeat incidence of uh, the costume malfunctions that we had in 1802, there was an additional note in this ad. The public are respectfully informed that there shall be nothing in their appearance or conduct to wound the feelings of delicacy. We also described, in episode 7, the one-night-only dance performance by uh, certain Midwestern tribes at the Olympic Theater, now the Walnut Street Theater, in 1812. And, once again, we urge scholars to give a fuller credence to Russian diplomat Pavel Svinian's entire description of this event. Although, reading it over again, I must say that his account is full of vivid details, like buffalo robes and masks that the dancers wore but they're mixed with a complete cultural condescension and even a wild speculation about what he was looking at. For instance, he purports to give a translation of one of the war songs that was sung at this performance as if it was printed in a program handed out to the audience, although I'm not sure that's the case. Also, by his testimony, both men and women performed at the Olympic that night. Now, if that's true, that's very interesting because it would mark the only occasion that I can find of Both men and women performing, all other dances I've seen described in Philadelphia were usually only done by Native American men. And even as late as eighteen eighteen we find yet another description by William Wood in his memoir of a dance at the first Chestnut Street Theater. This one was by a delegation of Wyandotte chiefs from territories around the Great Lakes, although it's not clear to me that they really were chiefs Uh, in Promotional material of the time such dancers are always called chiefs, because apparently white Philadelphians like to think they were getting royalty to perform for them. In the newspaper ad, anyway, their names were carefully spelled phonetically Horda Shauti, Taurowat, Ludu, Sayushayes, and Mandushaokwan, who will quote appear habited in the exact costume and arms of their country, and exhibit under the direction of the interpreter an address to the audience in the Wyandot tongue by a chief. Close quotes. Thereafter was promised war dances, a green corn dance, a buffalo dance, a brag dance, a dance of courtship, and finally, a speech of peace. Now this is the last example of a Native American dance held at the new theater that I can find. I believe that's because after this period, modes of transportation changed and you could go to Washington, D.C. by different routes. You no longer had to come through Philadelphia. So that period is going to end at this point. But I've mentioned here quite a number of actual indigenous performances in Philadelphia, usually dance. There was little suggestion at all during this period that these Native Americans join in and portray roles in the plays on stage. Now, I don't know if that's something they would be likely to want to do, although I do see that one of our earliest subjects in our podcast, John Bill Ricketts, may have employed actual Native American performances at his circus while it was in New York City uh, for a brief period in the 1790s. But on the whole, non-white people did not get to represent themselves in the theater at all in this time. Certainly not in the British theater, and in this respect, early Philadelphia theater followed right along. And if we look at the records of the repertoire of the new theater, we find many confirmations of this fact. A pantomime called Nootka Sound, or The Adventures of Captain Douglas, which was done at an actor's benefit performance in March of 1794, depicted the travails of a sailor stranded in the Pacific Northwest. And there were Indian characters, but these were all played by the white actors. And one Indian character, I'm sorry to say, was given the joke name of Wampumpu. Sorry about that. Uh, another example from the same year was a rather more dignified musical play called Tammany, or The Indian Chief, with a libretto by Mrs. Ann Hatton and music by James Hewitt. It was performed in both New York and Philadelphia with the actor James Hodgkinson in the title role. Set in an imaginary confrontation between a renegade lost sailor of Christopher Columbus and a group of noble Pennsylvania Indians, it was given at the behest of the Tammany Society, a social group that was fast becoming influential in democratic political circles. On April 6, 1808, another musical called The Indian Princess was presented at the New Theater on Chestnut Street. Now, this play, whose text we still have, was one of those rare plays done by the Philadelphia Company whose author was actually an American, in fact, a Philadelphian. James Nelson Barker had been born in the city in 1784 and was a frequent attendee at the New Theatre, and he had long had the urge to write for the stage. In fact, he was the author of the play Tears and Smiles that had preceded the dance presentation that we mentioned of the Oneidas just four days previously. The Indian Princess, his new play, was an attempt to dramatize the story of Pocahontas, and therefore it was set, as you might expect, in Virginia. It had been set to music by John Bray, another actor in the company, but again, all the Indian roles were played by white actors, with the actress Mrs. Wilmot taking the role of Pocahontas. Now, it would have been fascinating to find out if any of the Oneida chiefs, who were just dancing at the new theater were, were still in town and if they witnessed the show, but I can find no reference to them having been in attendance. Indeed, the main thing that we know about that night is that the performance was halted due to audience abuse of the young tenor singer Mr. Webster, who was playing the minor role of Larry. Other similar 19th century plays in which white authors and white performers dramatized native life uh, was Tecumseh, or The Battle of the Thames, which was done at the Walnut Street Theater on October of 1836, and Montezuma, or The Conquest of Mexico, which was staged at the Art Street Theater in November of 1846. Of course, if we're going to include theatrical depictions of native people of Central and South America, I should certainly include all the many, many performances of William Brinsley Sheridan's play Pizarro, which was set amongst the Incas of Peru during the Spanish invasion in the sixteenth century, that particular text, with its themes of defiance against invaders and a touching love story, was one of the most popular plays of the early nineteenth century, and it had dozens of performances in Philadelphia at many different theatres by many different companies but perhaps the most notable red-faced depiction of a Native American on stage by a white actor during the 19th century in Philadelphia, would have to be the one by one of the most famous actors ever to come out of the city, Edwin Forrest. Edwin Forrest, who after his 1820 debut at the Walnut Street Theater, had actually gone west to work in New Orleans and other places along the Mississippi River, and had even claimed to have spent a period of his youth living with a Choctaw Indian chief named Pushmataha. Though scholars, I should note, dispute a lot of Forrest's story on this matter. By 1828, Forrest's career as a leading actor was taking off, and he was just beginning to experience the first measure of real success. He was determined to create a new type of American drama, to drive his rise to real stardom. Noting the success of James Fenimore Cooper's recent novel, The Last of the Mohicans, and Remembering his time allegedly spent amongst the Choctaw, he put out notice in the newspapers, creating a contest with a prize of $500 for a new play. The contest rules specified that the play must be, quote, a tragedy in five acts, of which the hero or principal character shall be an aboriginal of this country. Close the winner, as it turned out, was John Augustus Stone, a young actor from Massachusetts, who submitted a play entitled Metamora, or The Last of the Wampanoags. The action of his play was based on the character of Metacomet, or King Philip, the Wampanoag chief who went to war with the Puritans in the late 17th century. Chief Metamora, as Stone wrote him, was a highly sympathetic character, typical of the noble, savage type of characters in many European narratives about Indians over the centuries, as was modeled in American literature by James Fenimore Cooper in particular. In most ways, Metamora has greater moral standards than the white man in the play. Metamora wants to avoid war, but when he does go to war, his vengeance is terrible and at the end he dies, having killed his own wife and son to prevent them from falling into the hands of his enemies, and he curses at the English Puritans with his final breath. It was a very muscular and heroic role, just the type that Forrest liked, and it allowed him to show off his huge voice, his commanding stage presence, and to display, of course, his massive and well-developed personal physique. The scholar Jill Lepore, in her 1998 book, The Name of War, dedicates a chapter to the play Metamora. She discusses Edwin Forrest's costuming choices and how he appropriated Indianness on the stage in order to distinguish himself, in a manner of speaking, as American, as being fundamentally different from his rivals of English origin. The poor also analyzes how Metamora's, quote, vanishing Indian story implicitly supported the U.S. government's Indian removal policies of the time. And at this point, we should really mention that Forrest, despite his supposed respect for his one-time Choctaw brothers, was an ardent Jacksonian Democrat and supported the policies of the American government that dispossessed, killed, or uprooted huge numbers of Native American peoples in the South and West during all the periods that Metamora was playing to largely white audiences in Philadelphia and elsewhere. Because Edwin Forrest first presented Metamora in the year 1829, and it was always a huge hit from then on, Metamora became part of his standard repertory of roles that he would play for the next four decades. It was a very lucky play for him. It wasn't so lucky for its author, John Augustus Stone, who, although he did become part of Forrest's regular Entourage, he never received ongoing royalties from the play. That actually wasn't a thing at the time. There were no royalties. Suffering from mental health issues, Stone drowned himself from the Locust Street Pier in the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia in 1834. Edwin Forrest paid for his burial and for a headstone. Edwin Forrest returned to Walnut Street Theater many times over the years and would almost always present Metamora, The Last of the Wampanoags, as part of his range of shows. It became so familiar to the Philadelphia audiences that there were even parodies of it produced here, too. Uh, One was called Metamora, The Last of the Pollywogs. Even in his final years, in the 1860s and early 1870s, when he was giving his last national tours as an actor, Edwin Forrest generally led off the tour by playing a week's booking at the Walnut Street Theater and Metamora would be trotted out once again. But by that time, American audiences were discarding plays presented in forests, old-fashioned, fustian, and contrived style, and they were becoming more concerned with authenticity and realism. So now theatrical depictions of Native Americans were generally centered around conquering the frontier narratives, such as those presented by Buffalo Bill Cody and other showmen, who would usually use real Native Americans in their performances. In the late 1870s, already a celebrity for his feats of bravery and heroism in the West, Cody was bringing his act on the stage to various theaters. But by all accounts, he was at first an indifferent performer. Until later, he began to refine his onstage persona, and he brought this new showman character, to Philadelphia's Walnut Street Theater. In February 1880, he presented a play called The Night of the Plains, which played to packed houses, and the cast of the show included Native American performers, which became an essential part of all Buffalo Bill's shows, and as buffalo bill's wild west shows became bigger and bigger playing in larger and larger arenas all around the country he soon was employing hundreds of native americans including such major leaders as sitting bull and red Cloud. like many circuses of the day when the show arrived by train in philadelphia there would be a huge parade through the city ending up at the exhibition field in eighteen ninety nine for instance it was the a huge, empty, undeveloped lot near the railroad tracks at 29th and Columbia North Philadelphia. Whole families of Native Americans were part of this exhibition, and they would reenact battle scenes and historical events for enormous crowds. By the end of the 19th century, in fact, American show business was a big economic supporter for many indigenous people, and there were both good and bad sides to this phenomenon. As the historian Paul Fees puts it, the role of Indian people was both essential and anomalous in the Wild West shows. At least in the big shows, they generally were treated and paid the same as other performers. They were able to travel with their families, and they earned a living not possible to them on their reservations. They were encouraged by Buffalo Bill and others to retain their language and rituals. They gained access to political and economic leaders, and their causes were sometimes argued in the published show programs. Yet, they were stereotyped as mounted, war-bonneted warriors, the last impediment to civilization. Thus, they had to refight a losing war nightly, and their hollow victory in the Little Bighorn reenactments demonstrated over and over to their audiences the justification for American conquest those quotes buffalo bill toured with his wild west show for over 30 years always bringing large number of native american performers wherever he went as late as 1908 he was back in philadelphia posing in front of wanamaker's department store in a big group photograph i'm attaching it to the blog for this episode dozens of native american men were posing in full war bonnets while their wives stand by and a row of half a dozen Native American children sit down on the Market Street sidewalk. Actually, there are many Philadelphia connections to these Wild West shows, including the fact that it was Philadelphia circus impresario Adam Fourpaw who first came up with the idea of staging a Custer's Last Stand show with Real Indians, a concept which Buffalo Bill soon borrowed. And it was Philadelphian May Lilly, a daughter of Quakers and a product of Smith College, who married another Wild West showman named Pawnee Bill, and she became a writer and a sharpshooter and toured with her husband's show, living and working along with many Native American performers for 50 years. Now, Lily never did so herself, but during this period, other white actresses would sometimes impersonate Native American women in dramas that showed the Indian heroine in a rather sexualized manner. We can see one such example in a poster that I'm also posting on the blog, for Princess Hunikaw, the firstborn, which also played at the Walnut Street Theater. However, I am happy to report that such depictions of Indian princess, that long-standing trope in American show business, was triumphantly reclaimed and reinvented by a Native American actress who appeared on the Philadelphia stage. Her name was Gawango Mohawk born Carolina Mohawk, on the Seneca Nation's Cattaraugus Reservation in western New York in the year 1860, she moved with her family to the town of Green, New York, in Chenango County. Called Carrie by her friends, as she grew up, her outgoing nature, as well as her prowess as an athlete and a performer, soon became evident. Craving adventure in life, she joined the traveling shows of the Wild West, like Buffalo Bill and Wild Bill Hickok, and as part of the cast of Authentic American Indians, she billed herself as go Wongo, which means I Fear No One. Like May Lily, she also learned to ride horses, to shoot rifles, and to participate in the spectacular battle reenactment scenes that sometimes featured hundreds of performers. But being a canny businesswoman, as well as a good performer, she realized she could make even more money as a star performer in her own right. Writing her own material, she came up with an action-packed melodrama called The Indian Mail Carrier. Now, we should note that this play was set in the plains of the Wild West, not in the forests of upstate New York. So she was taking on a character, in a way, of a different Indian nation than the one she was born into, but why not? Presumably, she knew what her potential market audiences wanted, and evidently she was correct, because she toured that play all over the country, and in Great Britain, too. Interestingly, she was an innovator in gender roles as well, because in The Indian Mail Carrier, she enacted not a virtuous or sexy Indian princess, but instead, she was the heroic leading male character, weptanoma in January of 1891 the show The Indian Mail Carrier arrived for engagement at the Lyceum Theater in Philadelphia the Lyceum was a popular house for light opera burlesque and vaudeville shows it was on the east side of franklin square now the reviews in the philadelphia papers at least those papers that tended to cover shows down in the theaters of the tenderloin part of town north of broad street wrote one journalist, "...the play is that of the Indian mail carrier, a strong, sensational Western drama full of exciting events. The part of Weptonoma, the Indian boy, is rather a striking one, being a departure from the average Western character as depicted on the stage." A Spanish Joe is one of the villains, and the Indian boy, bent on vengeance, goes on the warpath, hunts him down, and a terrific bowie-knife encounter is the result. The contest is a ferocious one, and after several rounds, the Spanish villain is made to bite the dust. Close and the paper also noted that Gowango was a perennially popular performer in Philadelphia whenever she came to town. After a busy life in show business, Caroline Mohawk, who had married a fellow performer from her Buffalo Bill days, Captain Charles W. Charles, retired to Bergen County, New Jersey. She died in 1924 and was buried in Edgewater Cemetery there. The Lyceum Theater, by the way, was demolished at about the same time as the eastern Franklin Square area was largely leveled to provide access ramps for the Benjamin Franklin Bridge. But I promised myself and you that I wouldn't get too deep into the 20th century in this episode. We could go on, but there's already quite enough here, I think. We've hardly exhausted this fascinating subject, but we don't want to exhaust ourselves, although I've had a great time finding out about it. I'm Peter Schmitz, and the sound and music are by Christopher Mark Colucci. Thank you for coming along on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia.